Good afternoon. Good morning to some of you. Good late afternoon to some of you joining us. My name is John Carroll. I'm the CEO and founder of the Service Council. And welcome to today's uh, presentation and segment of the In-Service podcast series featuring my colleague and longtime uh, friend, Leslie Paulson, the general manager of the Servagistics Business Unit at PTC. A warm welcome to you, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We will welcome you back and kick off our discussion momentarily. For those joining, um, we try to create an interactive discussion here and allow you to not only react to the discussion, um, but, but also submit some questions to our featured panelists. Um, so if you have questions for Leslie, if you'd like to dig deeper on any topics she reviews over the course of our discussion, please feel free to do so and use the comment function and we'll try to fit all of these into today's discussion. Wherever you access podcasts, this will be accessible to you. Right now, we're streaming live on LinkedIn and across a multitude of different social platforms. Um, and this segment will be recorded and available as a consumable asset after the fact. So if you'd like to uh, share it with colleagues, uh, if you'd like to uh, revisit it yourself, um, it will be available for you at the Service Council's website, servicecouncil.com or on our LinkedIn social pages, um, and I'm sure PTC might have some communication of its availability as well. Without further ado, uh, I welcome Leslie back into the discussion, and, and we are talking about a really important discussion, building a digital thread. You know, digital transformation has been a hot topic for the last several years, but threading the technology together into an integrated approach and an integrated strategy is something different. Um, and we're gonna dig into that a little bit today, what it means from PTC's perspective and from Leslie's perspective. Leslie, could we start with an introduction to yourself, maybe something personal about yourself, your professional background? What does your career span to all the good things that our listening audience would love to learn? Absolutely. Um, so hello, everybody. Uh, first and foremost, probably I've been married for 36 years and I have four Children, we have three older boys and then we have a caboose. So our, our youngest is 15 and she's a girl and she's still in high school. So uh, tremendous, uh, you know, uh, tremendous blessing there at, at the end of the line of kids. So that's kind of first and foremost, um, live in Peoria, Illinois, active member of the community here. Um, I've been in the world of, of uh, business for about 36 years. Um, my first, uh, I mean, I got my bachelor's and master's in engineering, started at Caterpillar um, in 1989. And the first half of my career at Caterpillar was in engineering and manufacturing. And then the second half um, has been exclusively in uh, aftermarket parts and service. So anything related to the aftermarket was my um, responsibility at Caterpillar for the last half of my career. And then I retired from Caterpillar six years ago, which is astounding to me. Uh, and then started working actually at PTC. Um, so a big shift from like big equipment to big software. And uh, so I run the Servagistics business unit at PTC and, uh, you know, thrilled to be part of that, that great team. So. Outstanding, Leslie, thank you. And I'm, I'm going on mute because I am remote today. Um, if uh, the traffic uh, in this hotel lobby picks up, I'll have to go on mute when I'm not speaking. So uh, bear with me uh, to our listening audience. Um, Leslie, thank you for the introduction um, and uh, what a what a great career and uh, you thought you were done and just when you thought you were getting out, they, they pulled you back in. So good stuff. Um, so PTC made recent news, of course, with its big acquisition. I think it was the largest enterprise IT acquisition this past year, if I looked in my notes. Um, and I, I promise I'll avoid asking you to comment on that. I understand there's still a process to follow and there's SEC rules or, or all the different things that you have to follow. Um, but um, we'll, we'll leave it to that. Uh, but I think for our listening audience, you've been making a, a really large impact in a number of ways across the service segment. And it'd be really helpful if you can provide an overview of PTC's approach to service. Um, what is your solution footprint, um, an overview of some of the key customers that you have. I think it'd be great for our listening audience to kind of give a backdrop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it is not a service is not a new part of uh, PTC's portfolio once the service max acquisition finalizes uh, next month, but dates back to the early 2000s. So in, in 2005 ish timeframe, PTC um, acquired Arbortext, which is obviously a 
fantastic um, solution for the creation, the management, and the delivery of you know parts and service information, which is critical to service. Um, in 2012, PTC actually bought Servogistics, which is the business unit that I run, and that brought with it, um, you know, service parts capability, uh, service knowledge management, um, and and a few other capabilities at that point in time. So that was continuing to augment the PTC service portfolio. And then in 2013 through 15, there were uh, multiple purchases of Exita and uh, ThingWorks, which are more on the IoT. Uh, edge kind of solution and, and um, platform, and then Vuforia, an augmented reality platform. And, and all these things come together, you know, to kind of leverage what's created upstream. So PTC's long been in the business of CAD, that's where computer-aided design, so the, the design of, of assets, and then in PLM, so managing all that context, all that data around those assets. So, you know, the the um, continuity of being able to have that engineering to manufacturing to service uh, is an incredibly important part of, of doing service well, because you need to understand the DNA, if you will, the DNA of the asset that you're providing service for um, in order to, to do it the best way that's possible. And so, you know, PTZ really is uniquely um, positioned to be able to have that continuum of DNA from cradle to grave kind of and leverage that to to most effectively um, service or provide that service. And so it doesn't matter if you're talking about the creation of information or disassembly and assembly instructions or whatever, that context that comes from engineering and manufacturing is, is a really important piece of it. And, you know, I think that there's some customers who hit it out of the, the ballpark. You asked about that. You know, they you know, Thermo Fisher comes to mind and probably because of the whole COVID thing, you know, uh, Thermo with their, you know, analysis, uh, COVID analysis machines and stuff, their business went through through the roof. But, um, you know, they're, they're very visionary in how they're approaching their service and they're working towards this uh, connected service vision and, and um, you know, leveraging that digital threat across engineering, manufacturing and service. Um, Metzel, which is, you know, a mining customer in, in, in Europe, um, they continue to have a very um, phased approach to enhancing their service capability um, and add, adding more and more. Um, NCR, you know, product as a service, you think of they're offering ATMs as a service, for example. Um, but there's there's so many great ones. Uh, VW Group um, just you know, entered into a very large agreement with us. The United States Air Force, John Deere, there's just a a plethora of people who, although many of them are doing it differently, you know, maybe they start at a different point in the digital thread. Um, they they continue to build on that thread and to continue to uh, drive more value for their customers. So that's a great great discussion. Thank you for the overview. I, I think um, you know PTC is is strategically positioned to uh, assist service executives and, and service businesses, given the extent of its solution footprint. From from our perspective, we're we're seeing a a return uh, of uh, a, a previous strategy of that platform play, if you will. There there was uh, a sort of revisiting of that over the last year, and according to the Digital Transformation Survey, the number one uh, technology that's new for this coming year um, is going to be FSM and, and SLM. That's field service management and service lifecycle management. So we see a return and a revisiting of that previous SLM strategy, which is more of a footprint across the organization. And, and with the recent acquisition and with all of the inorganic and organic growth you've had over the number of years, I think it positions PTC pretty competitively, um, as I'm sure you would agree with. <laughs> um, according to Gartner, IT spending will expand 5.1% uh, year over year. Cautionary tale, the U.S. government's budget will only increase 2.2%. What does that tell you? We're, 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 we're reaching some challenging economic climates. Um, some say we're, we're improving. I think there was another Fed hike uh, on uh, rates yesterday that I think is intended to help. We won't get into politics, but I, I guess the, the point here is that Signals uh, indicate that technology spend will increase, um, but there's some cautionary tales with that. Are you witnessing a volatile technology market right now and from an investment perspective, or have market dynamics changed the, the pace and the volume of sales? What's your perspective there? 
I think that, you know, it's actually quite good. It's, it's very positive right now that the vast majority of our customers um, and prospects, you know, current customers that are expanding and new prospects that are just getting in really are continuing with their investments. Um, I think that there's more of a recognition now than maybe historically that technology provides agility. And if COVID taught us nothing, it should be that agility is, um, is critical. And so I think that, you know, as we can continue to leverage technology to give us, you know, more flexibility, the ability to respond, the ability to work from home, you know, SaaS, SaaS in and of itself provides that ability to work kind of from anywhere. Um, you know, those types of things, it's now recognized that that um, is a strength um, the people who ha who are more agile, you know, survive these kind of bumps better. So I do, I, I think the vast majority of what we're seeing, again, we, we kind of, as we look to this year, you know, the guidance that's been given from PTC is very much that we think we're going to have another great year, but we've kind of planned, you know, we've we've resisted the urge to spend too much money um, so that we're positioned to, to deal with that cautionary tale you're, you're talking about, you know, if, if something were to happen. But right now, things look good. I love it. Uh, that's great. That's great news. And I think it bodes well for, for all of the the vendors uh, in the space. So let, let's dig deeper on the investment trends. I talked about uh, the number one new technology being field service management and service lifecycle management. And and that is unique from previous years. Um, the, you know, the last couple of years, it's, it's all been really BI, knowledge management, um, augmented reality, artificial intelligence. A lot of information assembly and information accessibility and and um, information empowerment type technologies. Um, so we've witnessed a, a rise and fall when, when we talk to service leaders and members in terms of where the service business is being managed. You know, some management within the ERP um, application that they possess, some management manage it in CRM. Um, and, and some in, in field service management or service lifecycle management systems. And then heaven forbid, some still manage it in homegrown or you know Excel spreadsheets. Um, and you'd be shocked to learn how many enterprise or mid-market still do. Um, but the, the number one vote getter in terms of the um, system of record for service was CRM, followed by FSM and SLM, and then followed by ERP. What, what are your thoughts on on these new technology investment trends? Is it, Do you see the same return uh, of that SLM play? Is that something you're witnessing? Yeah, first of all, I like it. But second of all, um, you know, there is, uh, let's say, a ubiquitous and growing market need for asset uptime and availability. It doesn't really matter what you make. Um, the expectations are for that whatever that asset is, it's up and available whenever I need it to be. Or if I'm in the military or the F, A, and D sector, you know, we talk about readiness. It's not availability, but is it, am I ready to do whatever I need to be? And that that that's growing. And again, it's growing across industry segments and it's just the, the expectations are growing as well. And I can tell you from my Caterpillar days um, that first time fix rate um, was incredibly important. It was the single largest factor in repeat purchase. So in, unless you satisfy me from a service perspective, I'm not going to buy another whatever it, it may be. So service, good service isn't just really good for the service business. It's good for the prime product business, you know, the, the original asset sales, because good service begets you the next sale of your assets. So as more and more companies, I think, start to really understand the drivers of growth and profitability in their in their companies, uh, service will continue to rise to the top of the investment pile because of this, because service isn't just good for service, it's also good for prime product. And I kind of think about it, if you take, again, bulldozers as an example, you know, globally, there's about 25,000-ish bulldozers produced by everybody around the world um, annually. Um, but there's about almost 14 million of them in operation. You know, so you think we make 25,000 a year, but there's 14 million in operation. And so it doesn't really matter if I talk to you about MRIs or cars or, or computers, you know, that kind of story is the same. So you have this in the birth rate and then you have how long um, those assets live. And so as these field populations continue to grow and assets continue to live longer, right, the opportunity that that presents from a growth and profitability perspective for a company continues to grow. So 
I think that that is really, some companies have, have kind of gotten that for decades. Other companies are just coming to that realization. And I think that's what's pushing that investment profile to look like, you know, the numbers that, that you just said. That's what pushes it to the top is this recognition that that field population far exceeds, um, you know, kind of the birth rate and we need to take care of it. Yeah, according to um, IT analyst firm Forrester, 80% of companies will shift their IT spending from creative creativity to resilience. That's one trend that I'll also highlight. And then there's some other trends that suggest that the, the technology decisions are being influenced from non-IT stakeholders. So 40% of IT spending is outside of the CIO's control, according to Forbes. And according to SurveyMonkey, which is the survey instrument for many organizations, including the Service Council, nearly one in three say non-IT stakeholders will influence the purchasing decisions. So this this lends a hand that service is uh, has has an influence on the IT uh, roadmap, and and um, and and we're seeing a lot greater influence and a lot greater priority of service-related investments. And and when we look beyond the new investments and go to expanded technology investments, according to our state of the market report and survey that we just conducted around digital transformation and technology spend. Um, business intelligence was the number one expanded uh, investment uh, from a technology standpoint, followed by knowledge management. And, and we just continue to hear this importance of capture, assimilation and empowerment because of all the challenges that we're going through. Capacity shortage, um, you know, workforce shortages, talent shortages, skills gaps, all the things that are caused by the, the continuum in terms of aging workforce and then the engagement crisis that we have that's also compounded by asset complexity, right? You think about products becoming more and more sophisticated, the need for information um, is becoming more and more important. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the importance of intelligence? You've talked about it already a little bit. Um, what is your viewpoint on the importance of information and intelligence? Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, you know, I have, to, I have to say, I've been hearing about these this impending talent crisis, retirement crisis, technician shortages ever since I started my professional career. So like since the late 80s. So this has always been a concern, a worry, you know, and it's going to continue to be. Um, and, and it's and it probably is magnified now even a little bit more again after after COVID. But the good news is that the technological tools that are available to help us manage these, you know, these crises to be able to onboard, you know, offboard, augment talent, um, the tools are, are getting better and they're getting more prolific and they're getting less expensive. Um, so there's a lot more capability to help us kind of take what's in here and, and pass it on uh, to, to other people. So we're kind of, you know, intelligence is interesting because we're just awash in information, you know, kind of it, it's everywhere, but getting intelligence from that information is what you're really striving to do or, or insight. You know, I like to refer to it as, as insight. What can I glean from all that data that, that will enable me to do whatever I'm doing better? So it enables a technician, if you will, to get their job done. Um, and, you know, it, it that it, insight is what maximizes the uptime and availability I was talking about before, because, you, you know, you have to be able to do that um, effectively and efficiently and wherever you need to do it. So I think that with respect to turning information into intelligence, uh, the democratization, if you will, of machine learning and AI um, are, are going to cause this, you know, next 10 years to be just incredibly um, amazing when it comes to being able to extract new insight from a given, you know, population of data. So it's kind of like, um, I, and I didn't create this analogy, but I love it. It's kind of like the new electricity, you know, so if you think back, you know, in the early 1900s, 1901, 1902 timeframe, when the beginning of electrical capability was starting to come out, what it did was made things easier and more efficient. I mean, you could drill a hole back then, you just drilled it by hand, you know, but electricity came along and you can electrify that process and it makes it easier and it makes it more efficient and it makes it more effective and it makes it safer. Um, AI is kind of like that. You kind of just layer AI on top of the questions you're already trying to answer. It just makes it easier and safer and, and more productive um, uh, to do that. So you still need to know what questions you need to ask of that 
information, but it's a lot easier to glean uh, that insider intelligence from that with a lot less effort. And I think that I've heard several futurists, uh, Peter Diamandis comes to mind, but say by 2030, uh, there'll be two kinds of companies, companies that use AI or companies that are out of business. And so it's, uh, you know, I think that's how important information and insight is to our future. And, and I think that the tools, you know, that we have to be leveraging those tools that are there to help us do this efficiently or we'll be out of business. <laughs> I, I, I love the quote and I'm going to use it. I'm going to borrow it and steal it. <laughs> now, Leslie, I promise this is a first. I am at a hotel lobby and I've got a choir, a singing choir behind me singing um, Christmas uh, songs. So if you hear Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, um, just take it in and enjoy it. Um, well, it's better that they sing than, than me. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> same here. Same here. Let, let's continue on the thread of data in terms of prioritization. Um, according to the 2022 Voice of the Field Service Engineer Survey, um, nearly 2,000 technicians responded to that survey, really data-rich survey for us. But the, the analysis told us that the, the number two dislike in terms of the day-to-day -day job was the time that technicians spend finding information. Um, and we still see this overwhelming reliance on older antiquated methodologies of getting unstuck. 80% of technicians still phone a friend versus leveraging all these great digital technologies that we've created to give them all the empowerment they need. So um, behind um, you know, uh, this issue are some pointed efforts to prioritize different types of data and intelligence and information. Um, the number one uh, data and intelligence um, was service manuals, followed by knowledge-based assets, followed by service ticket review and, and management, followed by pre-visit review uh, of the service asset history, trailed by training videos, and then uh, the customer history behind that. So uh, a lot of information prioritized uh, from the point of view of the technician, the frontline. What do you hear from customers of the list that I mentioned, or perhaps other adjacent inputs and outputs in terms of the intelligence requirements to be effective in a service role? What, what should listeners consider in terms of creating their intelligence powerhouse? Well, this is, again, entirely consistent with my Caterpillar experience. You know, our global technician um, base spent 20 looking for um, stuff. You know, that stuff is probably my technical term for everything you just said. You know, so stuff is whether it's the right spec, the right procedure, the right answer, the right part, whatever the case may be, that stuff. And if you're spending 20 to 30% of your time looking for stuff, um, then you're not turning a wrench, you're not fixing it, you're not, you're not getting the customer back up and running and, and you're, you're wasting, you know, your very, very valuable time. Um, so technicians, you know, of all types need to be able to find what they need. I mean, that's just so core to everything. And what, But once they find it, they also need to be able to understand it. Is it in their language? Is it at the right level? Is it in the right format, in the right tool? Is it visual? You know, so they need to be able to understand it. And they also need to be able to trust it. Is it right? And given the pace of engineering change, you know, how much upstream churn is happening while we're trying to, you know, take care of the install base, you know, the ability to create, manage, and deliver information that's correct and, and up to date is, is a huge, huge challenge. So, um, you know, this is a, an area that needs to be prioritized by everybody because it's at the core of so many things, you know, this creation, management, and delivery of, of process of, of technical information and everything downstream that that support. And once again, you know, there are tools out there, solutions that, that help us do that, that better. But it starts with a recognition that you don't want, you know, especially the, your highly prized technicians that are in um, short supply. And we just talked about their retiring and their phoning friends. You want them to be able to find, understand and trust the information that they need to do. Um, otherwise, you're going to, you know, penalize your, your customer. So I think driving that recognition, providing data like you just did in that survey and that report so that it helps uh, 
customers develop business cases so that they can go in and say, this is what I need to, I need some money because I need to fix this. You know, it's reasonable for someone to spend five or 10% of their time, you know, making sure they had the right procedure, the right answer. But, you know, when it gets more than that, that's, that's a waste. So. Great commentary. Great commentary. Just a, a follow-up on the wants and needs and desired functionality of the front line. By the way, we've moved from Rudolph to Feliz Navidad, so enjoy. <laughs> uh, the number one, three, and five desired functionality of field service engineers um, were visit was was parts related, supply chain. So we heard all about you know the the challenges of stalled supply chains and the importance of parts and parts availability and. Um, Field service engineers want it, need it, and are begging for it. And and so the number one uh, requested desired functionality was just simply inventory visibility. Number two, or excuse me, number three was parts uh, ordering capabilities. And number five was the ability to transfer, transfer truck stock inventory from truck to truck. So when they're absent of a part, how can they source is essentially what they're doing out of uh, necessity and frankly, desperation in many instances. So so behind information being one thing, to truly transform, we need to think about people, parts, process, data, don't we? Yeah, I mean, earlier you asked me a question and I said there's this um, you know ubiquitous need and growing need for asset uptime and availability. And that in fact, you know, is driving lots of technology to be thrown at that space, um, which is great. That's fantastic. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether your service event was a predictive event, a, a prescriptive event, a, you know, a maintenance you know, event or a reactive event. It doesn't matter what drove that service event. At the end of the day, if you don't have the right part in the right place at the right time, you can't execute. You can't complete the job that you, you're, you're trying to get done and therefore your asset isn't up and it isn't available. Um, so it does come down to an interlock between the, the people. You got to have the right technician with, equipped with the right knowledge, et cetera. You have to have the right parts or you cannot execute. You have to have the right processes in place to allow that sharing of inventory, you know, that visibility that's so critical. Um, and, and then, of course, you have to have the right data because it drives all the insight that you need. So if you don't recognize that interlock, um, then you're going to be unable to complete the task at hand. And like we mentioned before, you know, that first time fixed rate is the number one driver of repeat purchase. So you kind of shoot yourself in the foot if you forget, if you forget the people, the parts, the process or the data. I, I continue to hear a lot of focus on the importance of triage and diagnosis and remote resolution opportunities and potential basically shifting left in the journey of the service experience and thinking about how do we avoid dispatch in many cases? How do we become more intelligent prior to dispatch? Um, you know, the, the, the rise of uh, the KPI of um, dispatch efficiency, where, you know, is it the right technician in terms of location, skill set, um, and available part requirements? Uh, there's just a, a, a growing importance of that KPI and metric uh, from, from what we're hearing from members. L let's go ahead and, and continue the discussion um, in terms of um, democratization of service. You talked a little bit about this, um, and I heard this quote at the recent symposium that I'm drowning in data but starving for knowledge. But taking unstructured data and then making it structured, it's a process. Can you share your viewpoints on what critical factors are taken to assimilate and organize data? What are you hearing from your customers? Yeah, I mean, I think thankfully, again, thankful that there's technology now that can can um, actually understand unstructured data. I mean, there was a not very far away time when we had to tag all that data and you had in order for anything to be searchable or really, really usable. But but now there are tools that can extract insights, if you will, from unstructured data as well as structured data. Um, I think one important thing to remember is you still need to know what questions to ask. So I think there's been a lot of lessons learned by folks who, you know, hey, I'm just going to go hire a bunch of data scientists. You know, we'll, they'll, they'll be able to extract this insight uh, that I need, you know, and, you know, and that's all we'll need to do. But the fact of the matter is, is those data scientists are important. But right sitting next to them needs to be the application specialist, the people that understand the job to be done, um, because 
you, the, where all good AI starts is asking the right question. What is it? What is the job to be done? What am I trying to get accomplished? What might be influencing that so that then you can start asking that of the data and training the data to provide you the right answer? And so I think, you know, it's it's a mistake to think that the answer to this question lies just in the data scientist's hands because it has to be augmented with that that very specific knowledge of what what's trying to be done. So I think that that's um you know, you, the value of the digital thread in this too is huge. You know, so understanding that that assets DNA, like I talked about, you know, how it was born. If you envision that, um, you know, if you envision that, you know, kind of birth to death of an asset as the thread, that's the digital thread. There's a lot of um, functions that happen along the way in order to get that from birth to grave, you know, engineering, manufacturing and service but many sub-functions within there. And everybody's trying to make, you know, um, make good decisions. You know, the engineer's trying to make great design decisions. The manufacturer's making great manufacturing decisions. Service people's trying to make great service decisions, et cetera. Um, but, but they frequently are looking at it from different pools of data. You know, the engineering data, the manufacturing data, the service data. Um, so they're kind of viewing their decisions in a silo. And that's what we're trying to break down with a true digital thread is the, the more that um, each function can be deriving their insight from a common set of reality. You know, so for a common set of data, the context is the same, but I'm driving in, you know, engineering insight from that versus manufacturing versus whatever. If we're driving insight from the same pool of data, we're going to arrive at a, a more accurate, more cohesive, um, better answer rather than if we're looking at those in just silos. So I think, um, you know, that that as we look at, uh, you know, assimilating and organizing data, you know, what does that mean to our ability to deliver service, et cetera? It's, it's I hate to simplify it, it conceptually, it's, it's these pooling of data so that all of us can, you know, put on our uh, um, magic cats and glean insight from, from the same pool of data. I think that'll be critical. And, and again, thankfully, there's technologies out there now that are making the um, manipulation and the uh, storage and the analysis of big data much cheaper, much easier. You know, these, this couldn't have happened uh, years ago because you didn't have anywhere to put all that data. And if you put it there, you wouldn't know where you put it. And, um, and then it would take so long to run any kind of analytics against it that it was impractical. And today that's just not true. Um, so it's really, really allowing the concept of a digital thread to come to fruition because we can, we can um, have multiple functions along that digital thread looking at a common set of data but drawing very specific insight from it i think the other thing that i'm hearing from members um, of the council is the, the standardization of language in terms of you know fault codes that are used and you know you think about the complexity of an organization it's you know with inorganic growth across the globe you know there's different language used as you you know start to you know, piece together organizations inorganically, but then as you have this extended service network, there, there's all sorts of complexity in terms of language. And so standardization of language, playing within the same pool of data, but then standardizing the language, I think is an, another important and critical thing that, that we're hearing from members. Um, let's let's talk about the, the impact of not creating an information powerhouse, if you will, right? So according to the voice of the field service engineer survey uh, also uh, referenced before, um, I mentioned that 81% of technicians still rely on that phone a friend, right? Um, and we conducted analysis to, to build off of that. And what does it mean if, you know, one out of five, let's just say 20% of your staff gets stuck per day. Well, when they phone a friend, oftentimes it's someone else that's in the field. And so now you're talking about two engineers being stuck and if the duration of the phone call is 15 minutes every time they get stuck and your average labor cost hourly at the time when we performed this analysis, we estimated $25 per hour. I, I think that that's a thing of the past. I think labor rates have 
inflated well beyond that in terms of field service engineers. Um, anyways, the result of that phone a friend dependency um, was about $1,000 per technician in terms of cost drain on the organization. And so if you have 500 technicians and they're getting stuck 20% of their life, you know, that could be a significant, you know, seven figure cost drain on your organization. What else can the impact of not creating an information platform or an intelligence platform have on a service organization? What, what else do you hear as the sort of momentum building set of metric improvement uh, that yields a, a successful transformation? Yeah, I, this is a this is a tough a tough question. You know, I, I think as long as technicians are predominantly human beings, I mean, obviously that's going to change in our lifetime. There'll be a lot more you know robotic technicians, etc. Um, I'm not sure we'll be replacing the phone a friend uh, piece of this um, because we're humans. I think there's a lot of trust and comfort that comes with um, with talking to another human <laughs> that you trust about something. Um, and to be honest with you, sometimes it's speed. Sometimes it's frankly faster to phone the friend than, than what we were talking about before because I can't find what I'm looking for anyway. Um, but but we do have to move toward that goal of, of you know, eliminating the need to, you know, kind of fall back on, um, you know, our friends or that informal information um, process um, if we want if we want to be as efficient as we possibly can. So again, we have to go back to focusing on that, be able to find it, understand it, and trust it. Um, you, that information creation and delivery processes have to be more efficient than calling your friend. Otherwise, you're going to call your friend every single time. So I think that um, you know, from a, a trend perspective, we'll we'll continue to see people relying on people for some time in the, into the future until we can resolve some of these these uh these root causes i think that complexity is another you know factor in all this you know it's just the sheer complexity of what what we service now um and the skill level that that may require and that so that then speaks to why do you need to augment a person's skill set because frankly there's very few people that that have the ability to work on the breadth of complexity that may be in any given product or more so in any given um, grouping of products that a, a technician may, may be required to service. And so I think that complexity, you know, and again, technology solves technology combined with the people, the process, the data, <laughs> you know, et cetera, um, can solve this, the complexity issues, the efficiency issues, those kinds of things. And so it, there's a reluctance I've seen on all customers for years, you know, some of, of trusting some types of technology, you know, of, of looking more at maybe what the the potential downsides of a technology like an AI or a robot or, or whatever may be. But again, to solve those things, you just start small, build some success. Your change management will happen after that. So um, I, I think the core, the core um, problems to solve remain kind of consistent. You know, you've got to, you've got to be able to find, understand, and trust the information. You need to know, you need to know the DNA of the asset you're working on. What's the bill of material? What's the current bill of material for that asset? You know, some of these things are what drives uh, technician efficiency too. So probably a, a roundabout answer, but one that kind of says that I think people will continue to rely on people until we fix the rest of it. I think uh, I love your counterpoint uh, in terms of the cost drain that it can also be an efficiency gain in, in many respects because of the challenge and difficulty of finding the information through another venue, through another medium. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of efforts pointed towards proactively, you know, measuring and managing anomaly detections and service delivery so that you can serve up information more intelligently and more proactively to the technician. Yeah. So we've heard about that on the customer side. Now we're seeing it on the employee side and internal to the organization, taking this proactive approach with our employees, our service delivery agents, and looking for those anomalies and when and where you fall out of rhythm in a certain service instance, you know, uh, you know, the, this break fix should have taken two hours. It's taken six hours. Let's plug in and, you know, proactively support that engineer with the information that we believe based on triage and diagnosis.
could be helpful or, uh, to that person. Or, or maybe there's a safety related incident, right? So there's, you know, there's all sorts of benefits to proactively monitoring your workforce. Let's go to um, the modernization efforts. I want to get back to this digital thread that we're hearing about, right? So a lot of digital transformation efforts have been pointed towards, you know, modernizing certain elements of process, but not weaving it together into an integrated approach. Um, you know, there was a lot of reactive investments that were made digitally speaking over the course of the pandemic. And, um, and, and, and now we're seeing a lot of organizations, you know, connect the dots in terms of functional and technical roadmaps and, and eliminating those silos that we were talking about before. What, what does it mean to create a digital threat? Can you just talk a little bit about that? What, how, what, what, what does an organization do to embark on a digital threading initiative? Yeah. And I think it's a journey. I think everybody's a different journey, but I, I'm, I'm, uh, I simplify, I think of a thread, you know, think of a thread as a, you know, as a twisted kind of, um, compilation of fragments, you know, it starts to be a little fragments that are twisted together to make a thread and it gets longer and longer, the more fragments of thread that you add to it. And then you can twist threads together and make them into a rope. Right. And everything gets stronger as you start to do that, you know, it gets stronger and stronger. So in my simple mind, you know, yes, the, the digital thread needs to go from, you know, cradle to grave, you know, it needs to be circular and feed back in again, but it needs to uh, cover the entire product life cycle. But that product life cycle is made up of a lot of little fragments. Um, and you, you can't solve a digital thread journey <laughs> Um, by tackling the entire thread, you know, the rope, whatever, you know, the, the end state. You have to attack it with a vision, perhaps, of a, of a seamless flow of, of data that, that provides the context that everybody needs along that entire thread. You, you can start with that vision, but you kind of have to tackle it one fragment at a time without ending up with silos. So it's a little bit of a, I want to tackle it a piece at a time, but I, I want to make sure I do it in a way that I don't end up with point solutions that aren't sharing data. Um, so you really start with the end in mind, but go fragment, don't go full thread um, uh, the whole way. And I think that where you start, which fragment you pick to start with in a digital transformation is depending on where you're at. It depends on where you could look at it two ways. Where's my biggest gap? Or you may say, where's a small gap that I could generate some success early and start with that fragment? Or maybe you do both. You do a, a quick win and a long, hard one at the same time. But somewhere somewhere you have a map that at least loosely, if not because it takes a long time, so at least loosely ties together these fragments that you're working on uh, in, into a thread. Wow. I, I love it. Uh, I love it. Uh, that, that is, uh, I'm going to borrow that one too, because <laughs> it gets strong. I love the threading analogy that you said that, that it grows strength as you start to weave it together into a thread, into a braid, into a threaded uh, uh, element. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just loving that analogy. That's really cool. And I love the comment that you make about thinking big, starting small. Um, we, we continue to hear that as an approach um, to, to generate momentum, you know, it, you know, we talk about service and how important it is, but in many organizations, it, it's still making its way to the boardroom, and, and shockingly. Um, and so, starting small um, can can help you generate momentum in those internal, you know, cultural conflicts that you're having as well. So um, we we see a lot of benefit to that. You mentioned some of your customers before, Thermo Fisher. You mentioned a couple of others as well. Can you talk about uh, any other customers that are hitting a home run with the digital thread? Uh, any any stories that you can briefly highlight? Yeah, I'll give you a fun one. Um, I, I'll, I'm going to talk for a minute about Metso, and uh, they're a great example. They are a a front runner in sustainable um, technologies and solutions around the the aggregates, minerals, and metal refining um, industries, which doesn't normally, you know you know, envision a sustainable company when you talk about that industry, but in fact they are. Um, and they started down kind of this 
um, service journey in about 2014 with us. And, and what they've done is taken a very phased approach, you know, again, with a vision in mind for the end, but a very phased approach. Um, and they've been incrementing their processes and capabilities on this digital thread over the, this, you know, last, whatever that is, eight years or so. And um, they're currently leading their industry. Now their latest is they're adding their machine learning driven um, analytics across their extended supply chain. So it's, um, you know, it's, you start with, you know, kind of fixing maybe your own um, global warehouses, and then you you push it down a level, and then you push it to your dealer organizations, then to their suppliers. So you get this extended supply chain that they've built up and connected over time, and they plan it together, and they 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 do an end to end kind of view. And now they're taking machine learning and layering it on top of there. So it's just again, it's one way of taking capability, adding capability, adding capability, and then extending that um, broader and broader across across your organization. So I think that it's um, um, been great for them as a company. The return's been significant, but it's also great for their shareholders and their customers. And it's good for the environment because they're extending this. So, um, and I, I can give you as top of mind because um, as a quick commercial, if you want to not just hear this story, but see the story, um, they're going to be featured at PTC's LiveWorks um, in May. So you can see some nice, big, massive piece of equipment and, and actually hear the story firsthand of what they've done over the last eight years, because it's a great example. So that's what Bradley Roton was talking about <laughs> at, at LiveWorks. Awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, your, your LiveWorks uh, event has been so much fun over the years. I'm so happy to hear it's returning. Yes. Congrats to the whole leadership team on on building that back together. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people attend and it's just so much fun. And it's it's almost like, the this is how I describe it. It's like the CES for B2B. Uh, I yeah. don't know, it, it kind of like feels like that to me. So I've always uh, appreciated the approach there. Um, so mark your calendars, go to LiveWorks. Um, so let's, uh, let, let's uh, round out our discussion, Leslie. Uh, one of the things I'm just incredibly appreciative of is your recent uh, appointment to our advisory board. So thank you for your willingness to serve in that capacity. Um, I've always respected your opinion and, and just I, I learn every time we talk to each other. So I appreciate that. W what has been the value uh, in terms of your affiliation thus far? I, I know you just uh, recently joined us in Chicago at the symposium. Um, any thoughts on what you expect to get from this relationship? Yeah, I think um, without question, it's the amazing ecosystem of service practitioners. Um, and it's a cross of a really nice variety of industries, um, you know, but devotees of great service across all these industries coming together to have conversation around um, the research that, that Service Council does, you know, or our own experiences or questions that are hot on the mind of somebody. So, if you get that great set of minds sitting around the table, virtual or otherwise, um, you know, time, you know, both driving the research that you do and digesting the research that you do, I, I think that that raises the boats of everybody in the room. So that that dialogue is is fantastic. So the interactions, the challenges, the questions, they're they're invigorating. They bring energy to everybody there, and they also bring insight. So that's always good. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about what's next for, for PTC? Well, yeah, so many exciting things, I guess I'd say, you know, if, if in, in our way of thinking, you know, digital transforms physical. So, you know, digital is a way of taking, um, you know, a physical thing and defining it through CAD. So you take a physical object and then you turn it digital by turning it into a CAD model. Um, and then you can manage it through PLM all that context and that product data around that, that thing. And then you, you know, digitally, you, you connect it through I, IOT. So through ThingWorks and you, you can augment that physical world through augmented reality. And then you can sustain that physical world through service lifecycle, you know, and so near and dear to certainly our hearts. But, you know, as we look forward for PTC, they're going to have a system of record for, for, the, for, for CAD, for the product itself. Um, the manufacturer and a system of record now for service as we, you know, embrace our journey with, with Service Max moving forward. And so I think that is going to give us that unique ability to, um, you know, 
manage the DNA of that asset throughout its life with the context that that, that asset experienced throughout its life. And that should generate, you know, some really um, unique, extraordinary value for our customers and not just for our customers, but for their customers. Um, and I think that that's tremendously exciting. I, I got to tell you, I do too. I, I look forward to seeing the impact it's going to make on on the uh, service sector, and um, and it's just a, a tremendous path for for the organization. So kudos to leadership, yourself, and Jim, and everybody over there on the vision. Um, it's been a really powerful one for years. Um, what's next for you personally? Uh, mm -hmm. Holiday shopping uh, behind you? Uh, planning in terms of food and cooking awesome. behind you, or? Cooking for sure. That's that's a passion. You know, you, earlier you said maybe something personal and I laugh because people get surprised. I have I have four ovens in my house and then I have one, a big brick oven outside. So I love to cook. Oh my gosh, you're my hero. You are my hero. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so the holidays for me are all about the feeding people, which I love to do. So stop on over anybody. I'll, I'll feed you. Oh, I love it. I love it. Service is humanity in action right there. <laughs> Servant leadership. Uh, Leslie, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really great and rich discussion, a great resource for our community. Uh, if you want to learn more uh, about uh, Leslie's experiences, if you want to learn more about PTC, please feel free to visit their website. Um, and uh, Leslie's always uh, ready, willing, and able to engage uh, in a discussion with her passion around service. Leslie, thank you for being a board member. Thank you for being our featured uh, presenter today and guest. Um, and thank you to our listening audience for joining the in-service podcast series. This will be uh, available to you for consumption post-event. If you'd like to listen back, if you'd like to share it with colleagues, you can do so. Visit the Service Council's website, find us on social, or find this on any of the podcast channels that you get your podcasts on. I want to wish everyone, our listening audience, happy holidays. I think this is our last podcast for the year. I think maybe there's one more. I'm not sure. Um, if there is, I'll talk to you again. If not, um, happy holidays and wishing you uh, a joyous season. And Leslie, thank you so much for your time and your partnership. All the best. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> <laughs> Take care now. Yeah.